Board, standing in among the great series of people standing in for uh, James. And uh, I'm very glad to be here this night. This week is full of such remarkable, strong, resonant religious observances. And maybe we can feel some of that heightening, quickening of a sense of our presence in the traditions of this living planet. How many of you have been to Seder this week? And um, in my root tradition, it's uh, Passion Week, which has always had in my early Christian years tremendous uh, symbolic importance of the from Palm Sunday through Maundy Thursday, that's tonight, the Last Supper. And in that uh, root tradition, uh, one of the things that delighted me, uh, I stopped being very active in it in, in my 20s. Uh, had a little trouble with one of the chief features in it, which is God. (laughs) I got to feeling in my own sort of developing way of being in the world a little claustrophobic with the big daddy God always peering down at me, sort of down on me. Um, But at any rate, it has been, I've been um, fascinated and heartened by the development of what is called liberation theology in Christianity, much of it taking place in springing up, emerging in Latin America and having uh, repercussions in um, North America and and that, as you know, is there's a return to the founder of the religion, in this case, Jesus, to original teachings and seeing how, actually how revolutionary they are. Uh, when, <clears throat> uh, in contrast to the uh, centralized hierarchical uh, institutionalized religion that grew up over the centuries. So it's like the liberation theologians leapfrogged over all those problematic uh, developments in the institutionalized church, the compromises made with uh, centers of political and economic power, Etc. to find again a kind of living pulse beat of very radical teachings. And I have, so what I would like to reflect on with you tonight is liberation Buddhism, where we uh, return to the revolutionary nature of the teachings of the Lord Buddha. And I'd like to just share reflections about that with you coming out of my own personal experience. And that personal experience began some (laughs) 66 years ago in India. And that's where I encountered the Buddha Dharma. Uh, I had gone there with my family uh, to serve in the Peace Corps on the staff, because if you have children under 18, you can't go as a volunteer. So we were there working on the staff of the Peace Corps in India. And my encounter with Buddhism took a Tibetan form. It was encountering and being with and beginning to work with uh, Tibetan refugees. It had just been a few years since tides, thousands of Uh, Tibetans about the time that His Holiness the Dalai Lama came out 
there were many other monks and lamas and lay people fleeing the repressive Chinese occupation and coming down into Nepal, Bhutan, Sikkim, and India. And uh, to help them, uh, a particular community uh, get stay together as they had, they were from Kham in eastern Tibet. I began to work with a, a community, and am still in close contact with them after all these years. They've been a wonderful presence in my life. So I was um, filled with a kind of wild gladness to be around these Tibetans. And I, uh, but I didn't ask for teachings. I was very interested in what the worldview would be and what some of the spiritual practices would be that could sustain the kind of presence that I felt among the Tibetans, even after seeing them in tremendous hardship, having lost so much, and uh, being so ill. So they'd come over the Himalayas. I keep going like this because this is the Himalayas, and they're coming over. (laughs) And they're coming down into a situation of uh, heat, oppressive heat, and uh, without the immunities uh, coming out of their mountain fastness. So they were sick and uh, and without any material resources at all. So I was among those who were working to help them get established. And finally after, but I didn't want to ask for teachings because I didn't want to bother them. And it was, this was before uh, there were tides of Westerners coming over to uh, knock at their doors and engulf them with requests for instant Dharma teachings. And uh, so uh, the <clears throat> first little story uh, that I would share with you how that um, first taste of personal of <clears throat> the Buddhist teachings uh, in, evoked a response in me that I would call... Uh, Liberation Buddhism, and in the sense of immediately connecting with a kind of social political dynamite, that this would have tremendous relevance to one's work for um, social change, for peace and justice. So um, I thought it'd be quicker for me to just read a paragraph out of my little biography here. And um, so I'm going up to, um, on the overnight train to uh, Himachal Pradesh from Delhi, uh, leaving my family behind because now I'm going for teachings. So I got everybody to take care of my children and the ayah and my husband and cook. And I was going to go off by myself and get teachings. (laughs) And so, um, but the journey on the train was like a journey through hell. I'd been on the train a lot and often with my children had gone third class, but this time it was beyond, beyond crowded and to the extent that it was kind of terrifying. And so, <coughs> so I was, as I was rammed through the door, I started to panic. Over the shouts and deafening din, I heard someone screaming, realized it was I, and began to... <laughs> and began to cry instead. Three tiered wooden burrs running crossways left only a narrow aisle, and from the maelstrom of bodies, hands pushed me up like jetsam tossed from the sea onto a topmost shelf. 
other hands through my bag and bedroll. Weak with relief, drenched with sweat, I cowered there under the ceiling. So, um, I drew up my feet and disappeared behind a book. I wanted to effect as total a withdrawal as possible while the light still permitted me to read. I wanted to banish from my mind the last half hour and erase the whole teeming carriageful of humanity its jabber and clamor and smells. A large garrulous family unpacked an endless series of containers thrust redolent wads of rice, curry, banana up at me. I cowered behind my book. A pencil marked my place. I was reading a chapter on <laughs> Buddhism. I was freaking out, what is this? So here I was, reading a chapter on Buddhism. And I was proceeding to read about the second noble truth, <laughs> which is the cause of suffering. Which is tana or craving. Grateful that I was able to concentrate it all, I read a paragraph, reread it, that yanked at my attention. This was the paragraph. Tanha is a specific form of desire, the desire to pull apart from the rest of life and seek fulfillment through those bottled-up segments of being we call ourselves. Did I tell you that the book was by Houston Smith? That was what I was reading. goes on. It is the will to private fulfillment, the ego oozing like a secret sore. <laughs> oh. Every few lines to let the words sink in, I would lift my eyes and let my gaze wander down the packed coach. We strap our faith in love and destiny, the words went on, to the puny burrows of our separate selves, which are certain to stumble and give out. Prizing our egos, coddling them, we lock ourselves inside. My breathing deepened, each breath filling more of my body as if to ground and steady me for a physical challenge. My mind stilled in wonder, for the thing that then occurred seemed outside its control. Gee, imagine this. I thought of reading you this, and it's actually one of the most important moments of my life. So you better take it seriously. (laughs) (laughs) If I hadn't, I wouldn't have been here. Suddenly, I was no longer enclosed inside my own body, but I wasn't outside it either. It seemed to be silently exploding expanding to the point where everything else was inside it too. Everything out there, each gesticulating, chewing, sleeping form, each crying baby and coughing heap of rags and the flickering, swaying carriage itself was as intimately my body as I. I had turned inside out like a kernel of popcorn shaken over the fire. My interior was now on the outside, inextricably mixed with the rest of the world, and what I had tried to exclude was now at its core. My mind, when it could think, repeated one thing, Released into action. Now we can be released into action. Over and over. The world from which I could not protect myself became a world 
I was free to enter, to be. The division between doing and being had evaporated. Some primordial tension had dissolved, at least for the moment, letting self-righteousness and self-blame cancel each other out. The self was neither to be vaunted nor overcome, neither to be punished nor improved. It needed only to be seen through like a bubble that will eventually pop. So that um, experience for me, uh, right from the get-go, the way I interpret it was that the... uh, Dharma, the Buddhist teaching of anatta, of impermanence, of no separate self, uh, was for me immediately a per- as, as a freedom to uh, act within this world. And for me, that meant, given my background, um, that meant acting for the sake of all beings or acting uh, for... I'd been involved in the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement, and it meant, oh, now there's nothing stopping me. There's nothing to hold me back out of fear or out of pride or self-righteousness or uh, out of do I know enough or uh, nothing to hold me back in terms of self-importance. All of that just... It'd be nice if it happened more often. But so I felt instinctively then uh, from the beginning that this was the Dharma that would free me in the ways that I most wanted to be free. To be free not from this world, but in this world. Not to to be this world. So... uh, much later, um, I, I did begin to, to get instruction. And fortunately, the Tibetan nun who was teaching me had me begin with the Theravadan and with Vipassana. We called it then Satipatthana. And then, uh, I, uh, though I think she had in mind I would graduate to Vajrayana, I left India when I was still, <laughs> still in the Vipassana stage and that, over the years that we had in Africa, North Africa, West Africa, and the Peace Corps, this just became uh, my grounding and ground and could always return to it and uh, a never-ending uh, friend. When I got back to the States, eventually, uh, I knew I wanted to uh, go back to school to go to graduate school to study uh, world religions, particularly uh, Buddhism, Buddhist history, thought, teachings, practice, and I did. But already I was, my nose was for, uh, I was alerted by, fascinated by, and seeking out those elements uh, of what I would, I've been calling liberation Buddhism. And there are plenty. I was fascinated in reading in the suttas and in the Vinaya about uh, the community that uh, the Lord Buddha brought together and how the values that it he organized it around from the get-go. where everyone, he took pains to see that everyone from whatever caste, runaway slaves, runaway soldiers, dark-skinned, 
untouchables because the caste system, not as rich as, as it had would become and is today, was still very already very strong in India. And one of the most alarming things that he risked the most uh, and incurred the most outrage and economic, who is this guy will let this teacher lets anyone into his sangha. So it was very striking to me this uh, strong statement. And the oh gosh, if I if we just had several hours, the stories I could tell you, oh, about about how Brahmins would come and try to trip up the Buddha and uh, Gotama Sakyamuni, and to embarrass him, try to because by uh, letting everyone in of whatever caste and outcast. He was like thumbing his nose at the caste system and at the Brahmanical hierarchy. And uh, what he risked and what, how he stood firm for that was of tremendous um, fascination for me. And then, so that's just sort of a three-part, social, political, and economic. So we're looking at this community that he started and which inspires me still. The political, he urged people to be sure to get engaged in the decision-making that shapes our ways of self-governance. And do this because don't trust other people. Just as he said, be an island for yourself. Take responsibility for yourself. Don't take my word for it. Work it out for yourself. Which is held stare most clearly, I think, in the Theravadan teachings, if you don't mind my sounding a bit sectarian. But I really love it that uh, this tradition that we are blessed with in the uh, Vipassana stream of practice is one in which there is so much uh, respect for the individual conscience and the choices, and be put back. You make the choice yourself. Ehi pasiko. Don't take my word for it. Come see for yourself. Practice. You're steering your own boat. And so uh, there never was in his time, as it didn't go to the ecclesiastical hierarchy that... I saw, you know, I knew I'd grown up in my root tradition. There was no uh, Rome or Jerusalem uh, or Constantinople there where there was the law was laid down. No. There'd be places of pilgrimage. You go to Bodh Gaya, but it's not a source of the infallible unchanging teachings. And I became fascinated when as I was a student with the, what was called the law of Sangha Beda, of differences in the Sangha. They said, if you have difference, and this goes right back to the suttas and the Vinaya the suttas, if, you, if there is a difference of opinion and you can't work it out, then split. Go make another sangha. It's not a question of an orthodoxy. There's an orthopraxis, a right practice. 
of the Eightfold Path. But as to uh, the nature of what you uh, believe then, uh, attachment to the rightness of your point of view, uh, the Buddha said over and over again, is a trap. It's a hook on which you can get impaled. So there is this um, taking responsibility and learning to live in relative harmony and not falling for a position of exclusive authority. That's pretty wild, isn't it? And I think it is characterize the this religion as a whole. Not that there haven't been um, terrific, horrific moments when there was struggle for who's right, but not nearly as much as you see in other religions. That is my personal experience. And the economics. This Sangha What do we know about it? We know that people were accepted in it and they were to share their property. As a matter of fact, the original name for a word for monk and nun, bihu, bihuni, that means, comes from the word baga, share. It's someone who comes in and lives, receives a share. And the uh, the Buddha's suspicion of the suffering caused by private property is seen in a number of his stories. Again, I wish that I had uh, acres of time to tell you some of But it has heartened me greatly and to uh, explore these and often exploring them uh, with the help of uh, scholars, some of them uh, Marxist Buddhist scholars, uh, looking at some of the early texts and early uh, records that showed a... uh, standing apart from the order of the uh, mainstream culture to work to have people free, to free people, not only through the spiritual practices, meditation, to which you can be non-attachment, but actually governing how people, uh, letting people's lives reflect them in the way that the systems were set up, the community was set up. So I uh, gave a lot of attention to this uh, in my doctoral work. And I was thinking, oh boy, I want to devote my life to helping people know about these uh, uh, radical early teachings and practices of the Buddha and his Sangha because our world needs it today. And then I went out and stumbled upon, almost immediately, cases where that was already being known, celebrated, and putting to, put to work in Asia. And the first of these was, uh, before I'd even completed my Doctorate, and then I went back and spent a year. A movement, a Buddhist inspired movement in uh, Sri Lanka, which was called Sarvodia, which was a community development movement that was actually taking seriously what I thought I had so <laughs> carefully and uniquely extricated from the teachings. And they knew all about it and was doing it. And, and this was um, Sarvodaya Shramadana, is a, a community development movement 
or village self-help. And the name, which they had adopted from uh, Gandhi's work in, in India, brought it over but cast it in uh, a Buddhist culture, Sarvodaya meaning, which Gandhi had coined from the Sanskrit to mean the uplift of all, was then taken in Sri Lanka and in a Buddhist culture and called their movement the awakening of all. And so that's their term for development and village development and community development. It's not uh, modernization or westernization or industrialization. It's waking up. And you, what do you wake up to? You wake up to Shramadana, that's the Sarvodhya Shramadana, of sharing work and um, becoming a, uh, discovering your jana shakti, the people's power. So this fascinated me. Can you imagine, here I'd been sitting over old texts and then to lift my eyes from these old pages and walk out into the world and find a movement. At that point, it was active in 4,000 villages. Now it's active in about 10,000 villages. And spend a year there learning how these, um, this liberation Buddhism could be put into action. And they, how they uh, took the, and this book, I brought a few of these books I'm citing that out on the, put out on the back table in case you, this is a book I wrote about uh, the Sarvodia movement. And uh, they would uh, take the uh, Four Noble Truths, for example, and cast them immediately into a kind of social gospel. So, uh, it's the first noble truth, dukkha, there is suffering. They put up, and they, on, on the walls of their, um, village, um, organized headquarters, uh, and even on some of the walls of the temples, they put, first noble truth was, dukkha was, there is a degenerate or suffering village. So just to see, that great act of recognition that is the first noble truth. Bong. To face it, that we are hurting ourselves and each other in the way we live in this village. There's backbiting and there's hoarding and there's divisiveness and there's illiteracy and there's... And then uh, the second uh, noble truth, there are causes to that. And so they drew a picture... I. Fortunately for all of us, I don't have a PowerPoint. But (laughs) in this book, I have it drawn out where they, in other words, put it all in um, terms of the lives of the people as they, what is blocking them from... uh, taking charge of their lives to live uh, peacefully and to share and to organize themselves to make their lives sufficient, harmonious, and beautiful. Uh, So you can see how they, you can let your mind see how they would take the four, the eightfold path, and uh, and they were very, uh, they would hold up an image of the pre-colonial past. When Sri Lanka was called the pearl of the Indian Ocean, the granary of the East, the island of the Dharma. And say, that is our, we look back to then to see our worth and our, for our self-esteem. We did that and we can do it again. And we can wipe out for ourselves through our practices and through 
the um, determinations that we make in our work together to wipe out the sense of divisiveness and inferiority that has come through four and a half centuries of colonial rule. What we, the degradation that we experience culturally and spiritually under the Portuguese and then the Dutch and then the British. Now we are independent. Let us become truly independent. And we have to go back and see what was our great prize, the Dharma. And and um, use that to uh, for our pride. And then... And also, that fascinated me, too, how that Buddhist inspiration, the tolerance that was at the core of the Buddha's early teachings to share and make work equally with the Hindus and Muslims and Christians who were in minority in in Sri Lanka. So as you know, there's been a civil war there, a very bloody one over the last quarter century. And it's only over in name only. There's hostilities have ceased, but the suffering from that war has not. And it's, uh, but at any rate, the uh, teachings of the, that Sarvodhya brought forward from the Buddha have helped them to be active, um, and collaborative with all the communities. And then there are two other um, communities that I found myself in that were immediately exemplifying this liberation Buddhism. Another one was in India with a community called Dalit, Anybody know what that means? That means the broken ones. And that means that's a word for those who were called untouchable. And the untouchable community in India, which has about four to five hundred million, uh, many, many numbers of them have been turning, following their leader, Ambedkar, and converting to Buddhism. These are called the new Buddhists or Ambedkarite Buddhists. And with this, uh, it's a very stirring. They're taking the teachings of the Buddha very seriously and they are as if their life depends on it because it does. It's almost the kind of fervor that I remember hearing about among first century Christians. Here are people who grasping for dignity and for true freedom of uh, mind and freedom of self-respect, seeking it through the Buddha Dharma. So uh, there are wonderful um, sources for that if you uh, are interested. And then the third uh, community I found that was already sort of exemplifying this uh, reawakening of uh, liberation Buddhism was the International Network of Engaged Buddhists. And uh, we, the groups that we know in the West, Buddhist Peace Fellowship here or in England or in Japan or in Europe uh, are linked together in this um, network and the sort of inspiring, inspirational uh, center for this or no central node for this because it doesn't have any uh, power that it extends there is in Thailand. So there have been wonderful uh, instances and illustrations in Thailand of uh, taking in a fresh way, the teachings of the Buddha for um, stopping dams, um, 
where they are uh, stopping deforestation. One thing by ordaining trees. You probably heard about that. And one of the last times I was in this room was sitting here with Sulak Shivaraksha from Thailand, who has been a great uh, a founder of the International Network of Engaged Buddhists and a uh, sort of a beautiful example of uh, taking the Buddhist teachings very seriously for uh, helping us work toward a just, peaceful, and sustainable world. So that's my quick overview of what has been really inspiring to me. And I see that according to my timetable, there is time for questions. You, we have 12 minutes for them. But I don't like the term, I mean, I'm not an answer machine. Let's have comments. I would rather have comments, testimonials as to how you uh, experience liberation Buddhism. And do we have a mic? What about taking my... Okay. Here we are. Hi, thanks for being here and sharing. And I'm Isabella. Um, wow, you know, um, late 70s, I tried living on a couple of different communes, which I think we really tried to, and I had a couple of kids on the commune, and we really tried to, live with that and it was real it's really difficult in a capitalist society <laughs> there's just i mean it just goes against so much and and um i don't know i feel like there's a movement that's kind of trying to start that again and um we were living in a bunch of big houses that so house several families in one house and it seems like there's like kind of a movement where People have this, their own house on on a community land, you know, and 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 sharing things, and it's just um, it just it goes against consumerism so much, you know. And what was hard? Um, what was hard? I think we were all conditioned, and breaking our conditioning was hard. And uh, it was Doing interesting, what? just breaking our conditioning. Oh, you for know. privacy. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then also, I think, um, wow, we all had, we were all having children together, and we all had different ideas about how to raise our children. <laughs> and that really, I think, that split us up more than anything. Which I think maybe splits up couples more than anything too. You know, and. Um, I don't know. I just feel like it's such an uphill battle for our, um, you know, for for us. I mean, we just in our culture, we're so into even being in your own car. I feel like it's. I, I struggle with trying to get people to commute together, <laughs> and I was kind of hoping that this whole, you know, the the sense of emergency with the green, you know, greening of things and our need to realize that we really do all live together. It's just, you know, it's in our minds to think that we don't impact each other. And um, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I'm really, maybe that's just like a statement, I don't, my own struggle. And I just feel like, um, just thank you for, you know, your um, environmental aspects that you bring in this community. I really, really feel a lot of heart for it, but not, and I feel a lot of struggle with it, and it's just what it is, I guess. And all of that struggle and all that experience is very valuable because with the changes that are coming upon us now, we are going to have to work 
and live with more coherence. We have to, we're going to have to help each other. It's because the isolated living makes us so vulnerable and also makes us prey to fear, which is one of the big ways of controlling us to instill and feed our fear. So this, the adventure of finding out, finding how we can support and collaborate and break down the walls and, and where, where it doesn't work is just as valuable a learning as where it does. You know, like the log of a ship that's gone off course. It's very valuable. Ernie. Sometime a while back, maybe even the 80s or at least the 90s, I did a day long with you the uh, called the Council of All Beings. And I could describe my experience, but I think it would be better if you could just say a few words about what that was about and how you organized it and what the principles were. Yeah. Uh-huh. I've got to do one. Yeah. The um, so much of the suffering uh, that is created in our world today stems, and so much of the misuse of power and devastation of the earth stems from the view of uh, humans being separate from the rest of the of creation the rest of the natural world and this anthropocentrism uh, as it's called of the superiority of the humans uh, their apartness their separateness uh, is uh, what we need it blinds us to uh, changes that we need to make uh, to uh, act directly and freely for the health of our world. And that was dramatized in uh, my family's life and many of my colleagues through the teachings of a deep ecology, and uh, which is a movement and way of seeing life that... Uh, relates very closely to the Buddha's teaching, his central doctrine of dependent co-arising or the radical interdependence of all life forms. It's the one religion that is clearest about the consciousness extending throughout all life, not just between the ears of a human. And that uh, kind of uh, expanded sense of uh, existence, being, interbeing, as Thich Nhat Hanh calls it, um, and of responsibility and of agency and of glee, uh, we found we're looking at a number of ways through interactive exercises and rituals that that could be promoted. And so we found the Council of All Beings. Um, gee, that was 25 years ago, Ernie. That's when we started it down in, in uh, Australia. And in this ritual, what we do is everybody steps aside from their purely human identification and invites another life form, animal, vegetable, mineral, feature of the environment, what, to uh, speak through them. So they take on the role of another life form. And so there's a process you go through in this quite simple, and then you sit in a, a council, and these other life forms speak. And it is so exquisitely uh, liberating and uh, 
you know, when you step beyond your human uh, identity with all its self-importance, it's like stepping out of shoes that are too tight. Now, I know that women nowadays don't wear corsets, but when I was growing up, they did. It's like getting out of a corset that was too tight. <sighs> so you can, and, to, and the poetry, the poetry and beauty of the utterances, it's just astonishing. People could find that they knew so much. And actually, that is what some of the shamanic workers or some of the uh, people, breath workers like Stanislav Grof finds with holotropic breathing that we actually uh, have access, each one of us, to so much more about in the, the very history of life forms than uh, we would ever imagine when we're just limited to our human self-importance. Yeah, he had a good time with that. So now, my friends, it's come to uh, 9.30, which I understand is our closing time. So uh, let us uh, close just from with take a moment to... Uh, in gratitude uh, for these hours together, sitting together, experiencing the beauty of our intention to awaken, experiencing the solidarity of our sangha, rejoicing in the teachings and practices that are available to us, in this great river of Dharma. Grateful to ourselves for showing up, for being here with such presence and attention. We now share the merit with this whole beautiful, exquisite, and suffering world. May all beings be happy. May all beings be at peace. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.